0: Hey, listeners, it's Isabel. If you haven't yet, please sign up for the Borderline newsletter at join.borderlinepod.com. There's going to be a bunch of new stuff coming up with Borderline, and the newsletter is the best way to stay in the know. For instance, we have an event coming up on April 28, an online hangout for all members to get to know each other, ask questions about the episodes, or anything, really. So become a member, support Borderline, and join us on April 28. That's all at join.borderlinepod.com. Thank you.
1: When people feel strongly nationalistic, it's not a sign of good psychological health. It's a sign that there is a sense of low self-esteem, a sense of insecurity.
0: Hi, I'm Isabel Rogol, and this is Borderline. On Christmas Eve, 1968, three men took a photo that changed our collective consciousness. Oh my God! Look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow! Is that pretty? Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell, the astronauts on the Apollo 8 mission, were orbiting the Moon when the Earth came up over the horizon. You got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color, quick. Oh will you? man, this oh, colors quick. One of the three frames they took, later known as Earthrise became iconic. It was the first photo of the earth captured by men on the moon, the first widely circulated image of our home, a borderless dot in the universe. The poet Archibald MacLeish wrote, to see the earth as it truly is small and blue and beautiful in that eternal silence where it floats is to see ourselves as riders on the earth together, brothers on that bright loveliness in the eternal cold. If we all could hold on to that feeling, that transcendence, that the privileged few who have been in space express so well, there'd be less strife and division in this world. Hey, I've got it right here. Let me get up this lot clear. Bill, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Got it? Take several. Take several of here. Give it to me, Let me just get the right setting here, man. calm calm down, Marvel. Well, I got it right. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. That's the starting point for an article in The Conversation That Intrigued Me. Dr. Steve Taylor, a psychologist and senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, writes about the psychology of thinking beyond borders and what an excessive attachment to identity, national identity being one among them, reveals about psychological health. Nationalism, he writes, is a psychological aberration. You know we're going to make friends with that quote. I know, I know there can be a certain smugness to us anti-nationalists, transnationalists, globalists, whatever you want to call it, like there is to non-religious folks, a certain self-righteousness that we've got the good rational end of the stick. So I want to acknowledge that. And I don't know that this conversation entirely evacuates that notion. It's there a bit. But nevertheless, I called up Steve Taylor to talk about the psychology of identity and why finding your tribe doesn't have to mean going to war with the other tribes. So you start off by talking about, if you look at the planet from up high, from space, a few who have done that just talk about a transformative experience of being able to see beyond those borders and those groups. And at the same time, it struck me that dividing it into groups seems to be something that every species does and not just humans, you know, packs and herds. And so why do we do it? Why do we separate into these groups? Is it something that is just natural to us?
1: To a degree, I mean, human beings have always been tribal. I've done quite a bit of research on um, prehistoric human beings and on anthropology. That was for a book I wrote called The Fall. But I found that early human beings and also some indigenous hunter-gatherer peoples who are still alive today, even though they are tribal, they don't sort of, it's not normal for them to be in conflict with each other and to have a very distinct sense of tribal identity. Tribes are actually quite interchangeable. Uh, they're quite fluid. People often change membership. They cultivate agreement and uh, ties with each other. So there, there, there's still a kind of myth that early human beings were intensely warlike and they were continually fighting in groups. But the anthrop- anthropological research doesn't support that. That's kind of a finding which has emerged over the past 20 years, that there was a very long period of prehistoric peace. Most, uh, main, even most mainstream anthropologists agree with that now. And part of that was that there wasn't a strong sense of tribal identity, which led to competition and conflict. Tribes were actually quite fluid. So I think it's convenient for human beings to divide themselves into tribes and groups. But that doesn't necessarily entail a strong, distinct sense of identity and a strong sense of conflict and competition.
0: So where does that come from then? That comes later.
1: That comes later. I mean, if you look into the history of warfare... What you see is a lack of, an almost total lack of evidence for warfare until about 5,000, 6,000 years ago. Then warfare suddenly becomes endemic. It becomes very intense. And, you know, archaeologically, there there are signs of a sudden explosion of warfare in certain parts of the world, mainly the Middle East and Central Asia. And then it slowly spreads in all directions, really. Until, you know, about 4000 BC, then very large parts of the globe are, are engulfed in warfare. And um, that, se- that seems to be connected to a strong sense of group identity too. A, you know, gr- warfare is essentially conflict between groups. So in order to fall into conflict with other groups, you have to have a strong sense of distinct identity. and different- you, have a, you have to have a strong sense of otherness, you know, that you are fighting a group who is distinct and different to you who you feel competition towards. You know, if you were closely linked to that group, then obviously you wouldn't fall into conflict with them. You'd be more likely to cultivate agreement and some form of ties with them. That suggests that group identity was linked to warfare and they both became strong around the same time. I think there are probably some psychological reasons for that.
0: What are those?
1: <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> it's
0: a logical follow-up. <laughs>
1: yeah, well there are signs that human beings developed a a stronger sense of individuality, a stronger sense that we were individual beings living inside our own mental space. And, And that goes with a sense of otherness. If you feel that you are an individual living inside your own mental space, that creates a sense of separation and separation creates a sense of otherness, a sense that you are different and distinct. So There there were lots of signs of this increasing sense of individuality. You know, it's it's very difficult to say why it emerged, but it does seem to have emerged. And it's one of the the essential things which differentiates, for example, ancient Greeks, the the first so called civilizations from the the other peoples, the the earlier groups who existed at that time. You know, the ancient Greeks had this strong sense of individuality, which went along with their strong sense of um, their strong desire for power and wealth and their strong desire to conquer other peoples. And uh, it, it seems to be connected with the first civilizations, the changeover from an agriculture, from a hunter-gatherer way of life to an agricultural way of life. So it's probably connected to farming and settlements and civilizations. That seems to have led to this, it seems to have been connected to this increasing sense of individuality, which led to an increasing sense of group identity, then a sense of statehood. And even in very sort of literal physical terms, you get human beings living in small towns Whereas early human beings had been very... um, Well, as hunter-gatherers, we were very mobile. We didn't stay in one place. We would stay in one place for a a few months, maybe, and then we would move to somewhere else. So there wasn't a strong sense of attachment to one particular place, to one particular site. But once human beings settled down and grouped together into towns, then they became more territorial. And that sense of territory... You know, it was clearly connected to warfare and identity as well. Probably
0: that's interesting, and we, and we can talk about that later. But I, to me, it's I find that fascinating how that relates to what we're living today, which is uh, we had a world that was extremely mobile that has suddenly become quite literally uh, set in place in the past year. Mm. Mm. So, but but going back to kind of our you know ancient roots, what makes you then as an individual relate more to? certain other individuals more than others and form that group and that kind of us for system mentality.
1: It seems to be connected to a sense of insecurity. I'm not saying that anybody who feels that they have a national identity feels a sense of insecurity. But when it becomes very strong, when people become nationalistic, when they feel that they are in conflict with other nationalities or other countries, that seems to be connected to a sense of insecurity. And I also think that's connected to the strong sense of individuality that I mentioned earlier. If you feel separate, if you feel that you are an individual living inside your own mental space, then you feel a sense of lack. You feel a sense that you know, you're know you like a fragment which has been broken off from the whole. So there's something missing. So you're looking for things to to cling to, to strengthen your sense of identity. And I think that is a factor in in a strong sense of nationalism. When people feel strongly nationalistic, it's not a sign of good psychological health. It's a sign that there is a sense of low self-esteem, a sense of insecurity. Psychologically healthy people are not nationalistic. That's one of the things I've found in my research. Psychologically healthy people are transnationalistic. They go beyond a sense of national identity. They feel a kinship with all human beings, no matter their seemingly superficial differences. They don't feel especially strongly connected to the, the people who live around them. They feel connected to all human beings. So I think that there is a sense of insecurity there, a need for identity, a need to cling to, to labels of identity and, and nationhood.
0: Mm, that's going to make you popular in some circles. as <laughs> well. You, you write about, speaking to that insecurity, you write about the theory of terror management. What's that?
1: It's a psychological theory, which has emerged over the past 20 years ago, 20 years, and it's been validated by a lot of research. And the theory basically shows that uh, when people are made more aware of death, when they're kind of reminded of the mortality, it creates a sense of insecurity. And that sense of insecurity creates a need for identity. So it's kind of similar to what I was talking about already. Mm. And that need for identity manifests itself in increasing nationalism, a materialistic lifestyle, a need for ideologies of one form or another. So it's basically a a way that human beings manage the, the terror of death. That's what terror management theory basically means. So death makes us feel insecure and that insecurity leads to a desire to cling to things, to take on labels of identity, which leads to nationalism and ideological attachments. And also to it's connected to a, a strongly materialistic lifestyle to people search for wealth and possessions and more power and more success in reaction to awareness of death.
0: So what makes people who don't have that those particular attachments? What makes them different? What happens that makes someone feel more secure and transnationalist versus someone who's clinging onto those identities?
1: It's a, well, in in my research, I've I've done some studies of people who attain a, you know, the kind of level of psychological development where they feel extremely, they feel a strong sense of well-being and a strong sense of connection to other people and to the world around, a strong sense of connection to nature. Sometimes that's called in psychology self-actualization. It's when people sort of, um, they develop in a a very positive way, in a kind of spiritual perspective, you could call it a kind of awakening, a kind of transformation. And I found that it sometimes occurs after long periods of psychological turmoil. It happens to people who for example, are, are addicts for a long time, and they recover from their addiction. Uh, sometimes it happens to people who are diagnosed with cancer and recover. Sometimes people happens to people after bereavement, and they go through the trauma of bereavement. And in, in reaction to the trauma and the, the kind of desolation and loss that they've been through, they actually undergo long-term positive psychological development. It's sometimes called post-traumatic growth uh, in psychology. Or sometimes it's called post-traumatic transformation because it's sometimes quite a radical transformation to the point where people feel that they are almost as though they are different people to they were be, to the people they were before. So when people undergo this this shift or this development, they feel a, a tremendous sense of well-being. They lose their anxieties, they lose their worries. They feel very connected to other people. They feel very compassionate, very empathic to other people. And they feel a, a strong sense of security. They, they, they don't feel as though anything's missing from them. They feel a sort of sense of completeness. And one aspect of that is that they lose the need for group identity. So they, they really do sort of transcend any national sense of identity any kind of religious sense of identity too, but they don't identify as Christians or Muslims anymore. So, so it takes them beyond the need for identity. One sort of very clear example of that from my research, which happened two or three times actually with different people, there were a couple of guys who were massive football fans. I think one of them was uh, supported Leicester City, one of them supported Brighton. But then they went through this transformation after intense stress. Uh, one was a bereavement, one was intense stress and depression. And afterwards, they still liked watching football, but they didn't identify as a fan anymore of those clubs. They just enjoyed watching the match itself without identifying with a a team. And they wanted both teams to win because they didn't feel any sense of attachment to to either team. So when you feel that level of security and well-being, then it takes you beyond group identity, whether it's group identity in terms of a nationality or in terms of a, a football club.
0: Mm, that's interesting because that suggests that maybe a lot of the the conflicts that exist today around the sense of nationalism is something that potentially we could, if not end, lessen by by fostering a sense of psychological um, safety. How do we create that? Is that something that can be built and encouraged?
1: To a degree, it's something that can be cultivated. So we're really talking about transcending. A sense of insecurity and separateness i think i think separateness is the fundamental problem you know when you feel that you are a separate detached isolated individual then you have this strong need to to cling to things to attach yourself to labels and to belong to groups that's evident because in times of crisis this need for group identity seems to become stronger there are lots of historical events where you know there was some sense of national threat or there was a high degree of economic insecurity and that led to increased nationalism which led to warfare so you know fundamentally at the, at the most at the deepest level it goes down to personal development psychological development even spiritual development you could say that's why, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of meditation. I, I meditate every day. And one of the reasons for that is because meditation cultivates a sense of connection. When your mind becomes quiet and your thoughts slow down, you feel this natural sense of connection to, to the world around you, to other people. And when you feel that sense of connection, you don't feel a sense of anxiety. Well, you know, a sense of insecurity and anxiety decreases because you are not you are you are no longer separate. You are participating in something bigger than yourself. You are part of the environment you're in, and when you have that that sense of connection and well being, then there, there's no need for uh, group identity. You know, it's just a. Then yeah, another essential aspect of that is that you feel compassion to other people. When you are connected to other human beings, you can't see them as as different to you you see them as part of you and you feel a natural sense of empathy towards them and that obviously negates any need for for conflict or or competition.
0: Mm. I had a I had a guest on a podcast last year, who Hassan Damluji. He wrote about how sort of nationalism had brought good things to the world, essentially, and how globalism should learn from it. And his theory is that essentially a globalist transnationalist word would be the same feelings that one has towards the nation, but for a bigger circle, essentially. The same logic, but just for a wider group that would encompass all of humanity. And so I wonder how you feel about that. Are nationalism, transnationalism, polar opposites, or are they fundamentally the same thing, just applied to a different group? Because if it's born from fear and insecurity and anxiety, maybe that's not something that we necessarily want to reproduce.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one because... Um... You know, like I said, people who undergo this transformation, they feel connected to the human race as a whole. They just sort of transcend the sense of national or ethnic connection. But yeah, I think that one of the issues with that would be that we have issues with with the human race's attitudes to other species and our treatment of other species. And if you identify with the human race as a whole, which is in a way positive, but it could also lead to some sense of otherness to other species. I think we need to make the circle wider and include other living beings as well. Because obviously we can't continue on our present path where we abuse and exploit nature and mistreat, um, and murder, other living beings on the scale that we do, we can't live in harmony with the whole planet until we include all of the living beings and the planet itself within our sense of identity. So I would say that we need to go further and identify with the planet Earth as a whole and all of the species which live on this planet. Mm.
0: Until we meet alien species, and then we'll have to widen the group again. <laughs>
1: well, we can identify that with them as well. We can include them. We can include the whole universe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's That sounds like a quite a program. I want to talk about the past year a bit. One thing that I've been uh, reporting on a lot lately are transnational families, people who have loved ones beyond borders and who have been very limited in in being able to see them in the past year. And um, I have seen a, a vitriol <laughs> towards them that I didn't expect. Um, mm. And it's just been extremely, I, I felt actually kind of um, nations kind of crumbling <laughs> or, or, or separating between the people who are happy to stay in place and the people who, for whatever family reasons, had to be crossing borders and traveling.
1: mm Hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe it reflects the sense of crisis that I mentioned earlier, that in times of crises, obviously anxiety increases, insecurity increases, then there's an increasing sense of uh, otherness and an increasing sense of group identity and national identity. So maybe that has manifested manifested itself in increasing animosity, maybe even increasing racism. But I think there, there has been another side to it too, you know, people have developed an increased sense of community as well. Times of crisis, they can bring out the worst in people and also the best in people. People often become much more altruistic uh, following crises. Crises can also bond or bind people together. They can bind the community together and shift the community up to a higher level of integration. So I think that's happened as well.
0: So you're feeling quite hopeful about the, the general psychological place where, where people are right now.
1: To a degree, uh, I think you know that I mentioned earlier post-traumatic growth. You know that when human beings go through difficult times, challenging situations, it often has a positive effect in the long term. And I think that may be that may be a long-term effect of the pandemic too. A lot of people have remarked on how it's given them a, an appreciation for simple things. It's enhanced relationships. and I know there are obviously lots of negative effects too, but there's a small sort of group of positive effects which have occurred. And I think uh, once, if we do come through and life returns to some semblance of normality, then there will be a degree of post-traumatic growth. There will be an increased sense of appreciation and gratitude and an increased sense of community. But well, then again, I, you know, people accuse me of being a uh, a naive optimist. <laughs> but I think it's important to be positive.
0: The the world needs more of those. I've been accused of that as well. Um, but do you think that that offsets? I mean, on the negative side, you do have an amount of trauma and grief and anxiety and depression and all of things that come from isolation. And also, I have to say, the the thing that has worried me a lot and that a lot of my interviews have been about are that sense of, yes, stronger connection at the local level, but also a sense of alienation from other groups, whether that's anti-Chinese hate or borders closing or animosity towards people who travel because they're bringing the virus.
1: Mm -hmm. That's true. I think one of the problems we have one of the problems that human race has always had is that people who attain positions of power tend to be more nationalistic than ordinary people, and they tend to spread their nationalism to the ordinary. They try to spread their nationalism to ordinary people through propaganda. But there's a, a massive issue with people with narcissistic traits, psychopathic traits, Machiavellian traits, attaining positions of power. And that people with those traits are normally... corrupt, unscrupulous, very nationalistic, very keen to create conflict. But those people naturally gravitate towards positions of power, as you can see with President Trump's administration and the UK, the present UK government. The present Chinese government seems to be quite nationalistic and aggressive, as is the present Russian government. So there seems to be growing tension around the world simply because we have such people in positions of power. One of the things I, I'm campaigning for as a psychologist is psychological assessment of politicians uh, and any candidates for political power should be rigorously assessed by panels of psychologists just to determine their level, their personality traits, and whether they are, they're suitable for power. Um, one of the problems of that is that you know all politicians would never allow it because they know they'd lose their jobs. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's in all seriousness. Uh, I've started to write about this and campaign for it. It's, it's got a, a great response. I'm quite optimistic about it.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yes, because that is a is common issue in politics, that the people who are interested in power are are usually the people you really that really shouldn't have it. Yeah. Let's end on a positive note. Then what does uh, a different kind of leadership um, look like? And whether that's people going into politics or just demonstrating leadership at their own level in their community and their businesses, what does... Leadership that fosters that sense of connection and peacefulness
1: look like. Um, you could call it empathic leadership. It's I mean it, it stems from certain personalities. I mean, empathic, responsible, and compassionate people are generally not particularly interested in power. They don't have the drive to dominate other people, which is why we end up with you know people with the other traits in power. Empathic people like to remain on the ground, connecting with others. They're not really interested in raising themselves to a higher level and attaining power and and dominance. But you know, sometimes these people do attain positions of power either through merit or through a long process of slowly, you know, working their way up. And when it happens, these people—they are not coercive. They try to encourage people to make their own decisions rather than imposing decisions on them. They are very democratic. rather than creating conflict, they create bonds, they create connections with others. It's a completely different world. The world of empathic leaders compared to the world of uh, authoritarian, psychopathic leaders. Let me give you a concrete example. In Mozambique, at the end of the 1980s, there was a terrible civil war and hundreds of thousands of people died. But there was one guy called Jackie Chisano. He was a leader of one of the groups which won the civil war. And he became president of Mozambique. I think this was in the early 90s. But rather than you know punishing his enemies and rather than furthering the conflict, he decided to create connections. He decided to be compassionate to his enemies. So he included members of the enemy groups in his government. He didn't punish, send anybody to prison. He engaged in reconciliation. A bit, a bit like Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And it, was, uh, it had a remarkable effect. You know, the, 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 the civil war, the conflicts of the civil war ended, there was a period of peace, the economy developed quickly, childhood literacy increased significantly. And it, it, was, it was just an example of a sort of empathic, responsible leader with conscience, who made connections rather than, than increased conflict. And there's even a connection to meditation here because Cesano started to practice meditation and he decreed that all the generals in his army should learn to meditate or all seven servants should practice meditation. Who knows whether they were actually doing it. But it appeared to have a positive effect on the whole country. There was this increasing sense of uh, togetherness. And, you know, he, he was revered as like you know, as a rare example of a responsible and empathic leader. So, you know, it makes such a difference when you have a this kind of leader, And we saw it in America with, with President Trump, his kind of barbaric nationalism leading to increased conflict and chaos. Often leaders have this kind of malevolent streak in them. They just feel this deep-rooted impulse to create conflicts and chaos. But, you know, if you put somebody else in place with empathic traits, which hopefully, you know, Joe Biden will hopefully illustrate his early days, but he seems to be a fairly empathic person, you know, it makes a it makes a world of difference, literally a world of of difference. Mm.
0: He could be a a good case study, perhaps for you, for post traumatic growth, given his history.
1: That's true, actually, yeah, yeah. The likelihood of these leaders of of psychopathic, narcissistic leaders arising, it does speak to problems within our de- democratic systems. I don't think we have we have a a very advanced form of democracy, really. I think. The ancient form of democracy in Athens was probably more advanced than us because it was a very direct democracy where citizens would directly participate in in, in decisions.
0: I had an interesting conversation recently about trying to go uh, to, to a system that I think existed for a little bit in ancient Rome, which is a lottery where your leaders are, are literally randomly chosen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do that with juries, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to widen that. In hunter-gatherer societies, that's how often how leaders are chosen. People don't put themselves forward as leaders. In fact, in hunter-gatherer societies where people do that, they are often ostracized because they, people know that will disrupt the harmony of the group. So there are measures to make sure that dominant individuals don't gain power. And there are measures to, to choose people who are wise, usually old, experienced, empathic and responsible. Those people are chosen to be leaders, whether they want it or not. They have a responsibility to become leaders. Anthropologically and historically, there is isn't a difference between human beings. Human beings originated from the same place. East Africa, uh, about 60,000 years ago, I think, we began to migrate from East Africa. So obviously we just migrated to different parts of the planet. Our appearance changed due to environmental and climate factors. But essentially we just all stem from the same place. And that's even reflected in language. Some some linguists, linguistic anthropologists, believe that there are traces of one original human language in all languages now, that you can trace all human languages back to one kind of proto-human language. So there are similarities in certain words like mother and other kind of very elemental words in all languages. And that, that reflects the fact that we are, we are just one group who's spread out over our planet, but essentially... We are one and the same.
0: That's a good word to end on. One and the same.
1: One and the same.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you to Dr. Steve Taylor and to Dmitry Shishkin for passing on the article. I love it when members and listeners suggest guests and things for me to read. So please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm easy enough to find on all the social media and you can email me at isa at borderlinepod.com. And if you'd like to get more involved, become a member. We're all going to hang out next week in our monthly members call, talk about the episodes, any other questions you might have, and get to know one another. So now is a great time to join so you don't miss that event on April 28th. Go to join.borderlinepod.com and opt for a paid subscription. That helps keep Borderline going as an independent, fully listener-funded media, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music is by Offshane. Borderline is a One Lane Bridge production. I'll talk to you next week. And for the photography nerds...
1: 250 at F11.